The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. One of my favorite things to do over at Clearance Jobs is to scout out cool people doing cool things across the federal government and contracting space. Kristen Sargent is one of those people. She is the founder and CEO of Sargent Initiatives, working at the intersection of defense, security, and technology. I love that. I love where different things intersect and how we can gain advantage through those. So she spent 20 plus years working in defense technology, learning what works and what doesn't, and now has built this really cool company helping other companies see advantage. So thank you so much, Kristen, for being here and taking the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. So the title of the show, Security Clearance and Security, it also may be National Security Career Stories. I love a good career your story. You have an army background, which is also my favorite. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got into national security work and what led you to form your own company? Sure. I ended up going to college on an army ROTC scholarship. My senior year at Lehigh University happened to be 9-11. Just something clicked that what I was doing was going to be much bigger than what I had set out to do. I just don't believe in coincidence. So it was just an interesting time and place to be sort of entering into the whole national security mission. And so with that, I became a commissioned air defense artillery officer. I was actually a Patriot battery officer. But my last additional duty in the military, this was in 2006, was as a battalion information management officer. And so I had no training. I really had no college background on what being in information management operations meant. What I learned was how to drive to an office, pick up a CD with firewall updates, and then manually insert them around all of the desktops at our battalion. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is how we're going to lose the war. And so from there, I ended up transitioning out of the military and into the federal sector. I was at Booz Allen Hamilton and watched how putting the right contracts in place were really pivotal for the government to get the right blend of people with technology. And so I got more and more curious about how product companies do that. And so I then went over to Amazon Web Services. And what was interesting is if Booz Allen had sold more like AWS and AWS had sold and delivered more like Booz Allen, both would have been more successful. And so I've kind of looked at those patterns over the course of my career. And now looking at what is happening in the defense sector, I said, oh my gosh, I need to start a company that helps every company who's going to be unique and somewhere on that spectrum develop its way of selling and executing with excellence for the defense sector so that we can continually have the best of breed technologies and people and services companies delivering in the defense sector. And so that's why I started my own company. And that's what led me there. I love that. I love a good founder story, seeing how a company starts and seeing how you apply like the different paths that you had, the different careers that you had and led them into one thing leads to another. So 
through your company, we have a kind of a, a common passion point around seeing more success stories for companies who have innovative solutions and can deliver them to the federal government and not just deliver them once, but keep on delivering them. Can you talk about like some of the common mistakes that you've seen companies make as they try to enter into this space? Sure. So, you know, what we're seeing right now and what I think a lot of companies experience is just a byproduct of the dual use nature of what government is trying to adopt. The government is genuinely trying to adopt best of breed solutions that we're seeing in the commercial space way in advance of when they might make it into the government space. And so the challenge is a lot of companies are organically grown, are really built to deliver to the commercial sector. And some of the internal processes and mechanisms that they might develop don't necessarily work within the defense sector. And they don't work because of how the realities of the defense sales cycle works. So one of the mistakes I often see are unattainable sales expectations and quotas that are set more on a commercial framework and less so on a defense framework. And so if there is someone with with less defense experience or less federal experience, actually developing those sales quotas and those sales incentives for their federal team, you might be creating a square peg in a round hole situation that is creating something that that team cannot achieve. That's often a dynamic I see that's really difficult to overcome if you don't kind of really look at the incentives you're trying to put in place against the reality of defense budgeting, how sales work, et cetera. The other thing I see a lot of is people see SAM.gov as the end-all be-all to where to really develop their business. And the challenge is if you're responding to SAM.gov requests for proposals, someone has already been in there and in the mix and understanding what that customer wants and needs and has likely done some work in advance to shape that procurement in their favor. You're already reacting to something that someone has a competitive advantage against you to to pursue. And so I see a lot of companies spend too much time and energy being really reactive versus proactive. And there's a way to use the data in SAM.gov to get in far more of a proactive sales approach to put a more proactive approach in place. But being reactive and responsive to those types of RFPs coming out candidly can be such a waste of time and energy and and never result in the return on investment that a company might want to see. Put those aside, the number one mistake I actually am seeing is this lack of understanding by all of the key parties at the C-suite level and at the executive levels of their respective roles in pursuing the defense market and pursuing defense opportunities. And so it's not just enough, for example, a CEO to hire a VP of defense. They themselves, the CEO has to be engaged in managing the board's expectations if there's a board or in helping build a culture that can handle the realities of pursuing a defense mission space. The chief product officer has to be engaged in understanding what security requirements might have to be considered for that product roadmap. And so it's not just that sales leader for the defense sector that has to be engaged. It's all parties. My goal is especially to help companies understand what their collective role is, bring them together, and then get them aligned so that defense business can be executed in a very healthy manner. Yeah. No, those are some great takeaways there. The issue with totally unreasonable sales expectations, reactive models, 
unengaged C-suite who doesn't understand the way the government does business. So we have that, like companies are trying to break into this space, but struggling. On the flip side of it, sometimes we have what I call the Google problem, but it's a lot of the Silicon Valley problem. So companies that have a really cool value proposition maybe for the federal government, but don't necessarily have the appetite to do federal business. So I kind of see this with kind of this online back and forth. You have some companies who maybe think they have a solution, maybe don't or need to figure out how to get there. Companies who, it looks at least on the face value, who have a clear value proposition, but maybe don't have the appetite. So the government, should we be working harder to attract those folks into supporting national security? Or do we just say, is this maybe not for everyone? I'm just curious on what, you know, what your thoughts are on that spicy topic. No, this is such a great Great question. I'm so glad you mentioned Google as an example, especially since they held the Google Defense Forum. So it's a super relevant question based on their trajectory. But look, at face value, the defense sector is not for everyone. It takes a lot of time and resources to break in. And for your company, you've got a different corporate strategy that you're pursuing. And the defense sector and how it works, it's just not within the reality of that corporate strategy you're pursuing. That's okay. The defense sector might not be the right place for you to start as a company because something doesn't feel right for you about the defense mission. That's okay too. Let's look at what companies have to really understand, just using Google as an example. So if you look at Google and what happened in the defense sector, Google engineers essentially internally protested and walked off of Project Maven, the first really sizable defense foray in AI in 2018. Then in 2022, Google set up Google Public Sector and hired Karen Dehut, who I've been aware of from my Booz Allen years. She's a long tenured Booz Allen Hamilton partner. They hired her as their CEO. They then assembled a board of retired generals to really help shape and ensure that Google public sector and its culture and how it was approaching the market would be, you know, very thoughtful and very aligned with what the Department of Defense needed. And then they won a prime spot on the big defense contract, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability Contract, or what we all call the JWCC contract. So now Google's back in the game. But think about that. From 2018 to now 2024, that's what it took. Look at the investment necessary for them to do that. Look at how much time it took. Look at how much work had to go into setting up a totally different legal and organizational structure to do it within the culture that's built for Google. Not many companies can afford that, right? Like how many companies can really afford that? And so that's where I say, you've got to think through how is this going to affect my culture? Will I have possible attrition of the key staff that are building my product or that are key to how my company operates? I mean, if you're not kind of thinking thoughtfully and proactively through those, you could actually do a lot of damage to your company as it's in its earlier stages of really gaining traction and trying to scale and grow. And so in my view, right, the defense industrial base as a whole, it has to be strong and resilient. You gave a great example there and a great kind of use case for how if companies are struggling to go from the commercial sector to break into the federal government, that makes sense. And like you said, that is a perfect example. Like if it took Google this, these iterations and figuring out how to do it, then maybe you need to give your own company some grace or, you know, some resources or some time and a a different execution strategy because you probably can't just 
repeat what is giving you success in the commercial sector and then immediately jump in. So that's right. You work for some heavy hitters in the government contracting space. I can't keep up with company names these days. I'm glad for the Booz Allens, but like I'm glad for companies that are actually still the same because the consolidation, the mergers and acquisitions, I feel like every day it's kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And we've certainly seen some news coverage and some information kind of talking about the consolidation of the DIB, how opportunities for small businesses are reduced because of that. Do you have any thoughts on kind of how to operate in this space where it does seem like acquisitions and mergers are common? We do have a consolidating defense industrial base just based on the numbers. Honestly, I don't see mergers and acquisitions as a problem, but more of just a symptom of the market. At the end of the day, I think people always forget that any company that is being potentially acquired has the opportunity to say no. It's not like these big guys are forcefully eating the little guys. The little guys always have the opportunity to say no. Let's remember that to start. The challenge is, right, look at the market right now. Interest rates are really high, so cash is expensive. And for the defense sector, I generally say you've got to have two, and it's probably even better to have three years of runway to go after the U.S. defense market and the opportunity that that presents for you as a company. And so if you don't have adequate cash on hand, a healthy revenue stream to support hiccups in defense that happen, then you could really quickly find yourself seeking M&A activity ahead of when you intended to based on your corporate strategy. So how do you compensate for those risks? How do you make sure you're prepared no matter if those hiccups occur? Because they might, right? I think it's those types of realities that are causing what we're seeing as increased M&A activity, but it's just a reality. I think over time, the defense customers in particular acknowledge that these acquisition hiccups are really detrimental to the innovators that we're trying to really give a chance to. As they kind of even out some of those acquisition hiccups, we're going to see companies have a better ability to kind of sustain some of these market realities. But for now, a lot of these companies, you've got to be responsible and you've got to be prepared for what could happen. It takes serious sales discipline. No, I love that point. We're not having like hostile takeovers. Of some, some of these people, they, they want to be acquired. And there are advantages sometimes. I see that. Like there are business cases where folks clearly align too. But I think we can sometimes like, we're looking for like the big bad thing. That- yeah. Well, and these companies, at the end of the day, they have to be profitable. They have to make money. They have to do well by their investors. And so if something comes their way, they have to consider it with all of those factors in mind. So it's much more complex, I think, than what the numbers might suggest to someone who's outside of the market. The last time we chatted, you shared a nugget that was very near and dear to my heart because you were talking about the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency and how important that organization is to defense innovation. I'm normally the security clearance geek and everybody's like, why do you care about this? But I loved how you finally made me relevant to the broader community here talking about DCSA has a huge role and they always try to mention this too, like they aren't just security clearances and personnel vetting. They have a huge counterintelligence mission. They oversee the FOCI program. They are awarding facility security clearances as you're working with companies in that space is super relevant. Talk about like, why did you flag DCSA as something like, hey, this is actually an agency that we should be following a little bit, even if we're cool innovators and don't want to pay attention to like the old guard of these DOD personnel vetting people. No, I I mean, look, I am a massive proponent of DCSA because at the end of the day, 
I'm an operations officer. My favorite role in the army was as an S3, as an operations officer. And, you know, I was trained to think through that five paragraph mission. And we had to think through our five paragraph operations order, situation, mission, execution, service, support, command, and signal. But one of the ways that we were taught to really ensure we could accomplish whatever the mission was, is to think through the specified tasks to being successful and the implied tasks to being successful. When you look at the aggregate of every company trying to get into the defense space and you understand the realities of having to do it, especially when it comes to supporting classified customer use cases, what do you need to support classified customer use cases? You need a facilities clearance. You need cleared personnel, right? When you look at the aggregate and then connect the dots, all of those functions, which no one else can do, right? There are inherently government functions that only the government can perform. The DCSA, the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, is the only authorized government body to do those things. DCSA is critical to all of our success in this business, in the market. Whenever I am talking to any of the companies I have the opportunity to meet, if they have a government affairs or public affairs arm, I am always asking them to advocate for DCSA, get DCSA the resources they need. It will help all of us because at the aggregate level, they need our help. They need to be fully functional in the way that makes sense from their inherently governmental function. That is their jurisdiction, right? It's no one else's. But we as an industry need to help them and help Congress and the resources get to them so they can help us all be successful. What do we need to win at a macro level? And DCSA is just one of those key pivot points for all of us to succeed. This is how I know I love you, Kristen, because you're, you're looking at all the integrators, right? I mean, I think that's because that's what we talk about clearance jobs. I think people have long been like, your clearance jobs, why do you care about security? I'm like, because you can't hire a cleared person without a security officer and a security clearance. So early on, we created a vested interest in saying, hey, we care about security clearance reform because we need clear talent and you can't get clear talent. And I think sometimes companies can get so especially the new innovative companies, like they have this cool thing that they're doing, but you can't compete in the federal space if you're not integrating all of those pieces. And like, again, you need to know who DCSA is if you're going to need a facility security clearance down the road and then getting all of those pieces together. So this is the synergy right here. Yeah, you've got to think one, two, three steps ahead, be really thoughtful. And so the more we can help companies know where those resources are and take advantage of them, the more success they'll have. And I think the better our defense mission will be served. We know better way to end it on, on that like dose of HUA or in America or whatever we can be, we can be service agnostic. It takes, it takes all people in the government ecosystem, but thank you so much, Kristen Sargent, Sargent initiatives. I love the innovation you bring to the table saying, Hey, we want companies who can compete in this space and compete to win and have a long-term vision for that. And you just have a lot of great clear takeaways for companies who are trying to do that. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for chatting with me. Thanks so much, Lindy. This was a joy. Thank you. Welcome back. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. And Lindy, tax time is on the horizon. And 
I think it's a time of the year that we all sort of, you know, dread to some extent, not so much because we have anything to hide or we've, we've done anything wrong, but just, you know, the hassle really more than anything. With that comes some avoidable security clearance risks. I don't know about you, Lindy, but this is certainly an area that I learned a lot more than I ever wanted to about as a result of being an investigator and being a security clearance attorney for as long as I was. I'm sure you've encountered it lots on clearancejobs.com with people writing in you know, questions about their tax concerns and how it's going to impact their security clearance. Off the top of your head, I mean, is there any persistent theme that you've seen here with areas of questioning or anything like that comes to mind? Yeah, I love this topic because, well, first, because I haven't had to file my taxes in years because my brother's a CPA. So my first hot tip is just find a relative and just stop thinking about it. What might surprise folks, or maybe not, is people don't ask about taxes. I feel like if you're the kind of person who forgets to pay your taxes, you're not the kind of person who's proactive enough to ask a site like Clearance Jobs about paying your taxes. But where I learned a lot about this is in my active perusal as number one fan of the Doha cases. If you have failed to file your taxes for several years, the government gets a little pissed about it. It makes sense to me because you think about it, you're applying for a national security career. So if you do not have an understanding that you have to pay taxes every year, I feel like it's just a wise choice by the government to say, sorry, you probably need to work in the private sector. But we would see those cases of just people who did not pay their taxes. Oh, I didn't think I owed this year, so I just didn't file. I mean, in just a huge swath of ignorance about the process. And what I found, it was helpful, to, again, looking through the cases because there were incidents where someone had not filed because of there was an estate dispute, right? They inherited something and then it was going to mess with their taxes. And this is where the paper trail always helps you. So we saw some cases where people had some pretty messy tax situations were able to get out of it. What was really hard to overcome was just the lump just did not file their taxes over multiple years and then shrug their shoulders. And even if they kind of tried to catch up, I think that's something it just it's a red flag for the government. If your allegiance to the United States is not enough for you to even like pay attention to your taxes, we're really not sure about your ability to protect national security information. Yeah. You know, every year I see some story in the news about how many people at the IRS, as a result of some GAO audit or something, have been discovered to have not paid their taxes. And that one has always, you know, just been really astounding to me. And I, every once in a while, I would see this in practice where, you know, somebody would be working at the IRS or they'd be applying to the IRS and they would have, you know, tons of delinquent taxes. And I would just be like, you know, this is going to be a really tough sell. Like, I'll do my best for you. But I, I mean, you know, you, you can't really make the ignorance argument. Just like, you know, people applying to, for example, DEA, you know, with a, a extensive history of drug use are going to struggle. These are like basic suitability issues that arise on a fairly regular basis in the government. I think your broader point is one worth reiterating. And that is that these cases, in my experience, fall into kind of two broad categories. One being the case of somebody historically has done everything right. And then some weird, convoluted, complicated mess happens with their taxes where they are dealing with a trust or they're dealing with some obscure you know, sale of some asset or something. And they just run into these complicated tax issues. And that was something that really struck me is just how 
complicated and how needlessly complicated the tax code can be. I took tax law in law school. It was a required class back then. And everybody just was like, oh my God, get me out of here. This is the most boring topic you could possibly imagine. But it actually wound up serving me very well later in practice because I was able to say, okay, yeah, I know what this is. I have at least enough of a baseline knowledge to say, okay, we're dealing with this issue. Here's you know your starting place and you need to go do X. Invariably, that X was, you need to go talk to an accountant because I I can't help you. This is too complicated. I'm not a tax attorney. The takeaway there, go talk to an accountant. Don't try to do this on your own. You know, my biggest piece of advice on this to my clients, and, and I think this applies to the general population of security clearance holders as well, is if you've got tax problems in your background, the time to clean them up is not after you've submitted your application or your reapplication. It's like yesterday. I would counsel people on a fairly regular basis saying, hey, I know this job application looks enticing or I know that this job offer sounds great, but you really ought to think twice about pursuing it until you get your taxes cleaned up. Now's not the time to apply for that clearance upgrade. I'm assuming you would tell people the same thing based on what you've seen, but what else, you know, from your perspective has has come up here? And then I want to talk briefly about the three places that, that I've seen this be a particular issue. Yeah. Taxes will catch you. And so my other takeaway is just that people ask a ton over at clearance jobs about outside employment. Hey, can I accept XYZ job or overseas property or things like that? And my first caveat with that is like, make sure you're paying your taxes on it and make sure you're paying employment taxes because I see that come up with outside employment or things like that. It's less the employment issue than it is. The taxes are more likely to cause issues on those other topics too. So I think understanding the scope of how wide the the government's hold on your finances may be behooves you because we'll see financial issues come up in other ways. And it's because people, it's not just your employment taxes, it's business taxes, or again, outside stocks, other things. And those will come up in a security clearance background investigation process. And especially under continuous vetting now, I think there's less opportunities for folks to hide things. I think more things will come up if you're not paying taxes around other things. Let's talk specifically about exactly that issue and some of the you know specific ways that we've seen this come up in surprising contexts, one of which is paying domestic workers, i.e., you know, full-time live-in nanny or something along those lines, under the table. There is such a thing as the nanny tax. It's not a myth. You have to payroll taxes on your household employees, meaning you have to pay their Social Security and Medicare, the employer's portion of it. There are also often state level requirements as well, depending on what state you live in, in terms of filing, registration, workers comp. I used to see probably a few times a year, people who would get themselves into trouble with this issue. Often folks who are at a fairly high level in the government where they were maybe under consideration for some sort of high level appointment, a presidential appointment, or you know an agency head position or something like that, where this would really come back to bite them. There have been a handful of news stories about people, this issue has tanked over the years. The other area was unreported income in weird contexts. So for example, working under the table, the applicant themselves was working under the table or had been previously. They had a rental property where they weren't paying taxes and reporting the income there. Crypto, that's something we've talked about, obviously, in the context of crypto itself. But you know, previously, there wasn't anywhere explicitly to report that income 
on the tax reporting forms, however it was expected to be reported. And so now there's a little box on the tax return that asks, you know, have you held any digital currencies? And so it's it's kind of flagging it for people. And then lastly, and this is one that always surprised me how prevalent this was, but confusion around this non-existent quote unquote three-year rule, people were under this erroneous impression based on poorly worded language on the IRS website that they had three years to file their tax return. When in reality, the three-year rule is you're required to file on the due date, but if you're owed a refund you and you file late, you have three years to claim it. Those are the kind of surprising things that I would see come up on a pretty regular basis. You know, just hopefully a good reminder, file your taxes on time. It's one of the biggest ways that clearance holders get themselves tripped up. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.